The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up, and he arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked um, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that kept uh, the crowd that I'm going to go back one yeah we are the crowd that kept uh, followed kept shouting get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? He replied, Do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Curiously, one of the Jewish historians of that day, famous Jewish historian Josephus, in his histories, records that event of this uh, Egyptian... Jewish man who uh, led a revolt. So it was an event that had happened quite recently. And Paul answered verse 39, I'm I'm a Jew from Tarsus in uh, Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Well, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, Listen now to my defense. And when they heard him uh, speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul was no coward. Paul went to Jerusalem knowing that he would be arrested and quite possibly killed. But when the firing squad sort of steps forward and, you know, they have their guns and they say, you know, ready, aim, fire— at the moment that the bullets start flying through the air, it's almost as if, like, using a, a pop cultural metaphor, it's almost like the Matrix. Like, Paul goes all Keanu Reeves and starts dodging the bullets um, at the very last minute, and not a single one of the bullets touches him, which is kind of curious, because I said last week how uh, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is trying to show us how, in many ways, Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. He, he is being led to the city of Jerusalem. He's been told that he's going to suffer there. He is, like, so much walking in the, the rabbi's footsteps, but here, he doesn't follow in the way of Jesus. Not in that way. Not yet. And it's because of his shrewd behavior. So what I thought I'd do is try to show a few examples of a uniquely shrewd perspective that shows forth in the Apostle Paul in this passage. And it's a strange passage to preach on. Like, it, it normally it just gets skipped over. <laughs> and, and this topic of trying to find shrewdness in Paul is definitely, I mean, how many sermons have you heard on that before? It's pretty rare. But I, I think it's interesting, and, and I hope then to speak about how, how maybe it applies to us in, in, in our life situation. Okay, first of all, verse 37. You've got uh, the Roman commander who has taken Paul, and at, the, at the, this crazy moment, people are shouting, he's doing this, he's doing that. All of a sudden, Paul turns to the commander, and what does he do? He speaks to him in formal, courteous Greek. 
Why would he do that? Well, it would definitely indicate that, you know, I'm not some low-life criminal. I'm, I'm a person of a particular social class, per particular status and education. And you notice in verse 38 uh, how struck the commander is. Um, uh, maybe it wasn't verse 38. It's where he says, like, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time, time ago? And Paul's like, well, no, you can tell because listen to my accent. And, you know, back in those days, not only the language that you spoke, but even your accent influenced other people's opinion of you. I say back in those days, like, that's true of us today, too, isn't it, in America? If you sound, if you sound like you grew up in the whole country of Appalachia, you know, generally speaking, people aren't going to take you quite as seriously as if you have, you know, a great British aristocratic voice that, you know, walks straight out of um, Dotton Abbey. So Paul very intentionally at this moment sort of, he plays the cultured card. He says, you can, you can tell that I'm no ordinary man. He speaks in such a way as to get the commander's attention. Now the crowd is ready to just tear him apart limb by limb. You know, um, and then in verse 40, Paul thinks, well, I'm going to speak to the crowd. And we read that uh, when the commander had given him permission, Paul standing on the steps Look at this. He motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a, a great hush. So this, large, this scene of a large crowd, furious, foaming at the mouth, lusting for his blood, and what does he do at that moment? <laughs> he uses some kind of orders gesture, which I'm sure was much more powerful than this, <laughs> or this, or... Uh, <clears throat> How many, um, uh, how many times have you seen a first-grade teacher try to get control of the classroom by using a, a sort of an orders gesture? We might do like five, four, three, two, one. Um, he, he, some, I wish they would teach us in seminary, like, how do you do that? <laughs> Shush the crowd in a moment. But that's what he does. Um, we don't know what the gesture was. All we know is that it commanded their attention. And then after that, he begins, he begins to speak to the crowd in a different language altogether, in Aramaic, which was the language of the people, the primary language spoken in Jerusalem. The people that were probably accusing him in the temple, as I said before, they came from different parts of the empire. They probably didn't even speak Aramaic. But when Paul stands up before the crowd, he's speaking in, again, perfectly accented Aramaic. And in his speech, uh, he name drops. He says, and by the way, I happen to be a guy who has studied under Gamaliel, who was a very famous rabbi in the first century. He, you know, he name drops a fam famous rabbi. And so basically, here's where, where I'm going with it. In the space of about five minutes, he's completely turned the tables. It's remarkable. He goes from being a, a prisoner of the Romans and a victim of the mob to, like, being in control of the situation. Now, one of the things that I think everybody loved the most about the Karate Kid was, you know, wax on, wax off, Daniel's son. So Mr. Miyagi was going to teach his young protege uh, how to do karate, and the way that he did it was, well, he, he made him you know, wax the, the car and, and made him, you know, paint the fence up and down. And you see basically all these in, seemingly incidental events um, that helped Daniel acquire the skills that eventually, you know, turned him into a, a karate maestro. Um, 
It's almost as if, like, God just, he, God doesn't waste anything in our lives. I wonder if you can even look at your own life and see that, you know, maybe that there are skills that he's taught you or experiences that he's led you through that have taught, that have made you into the unique person that you are and that enable you to, like, use what you have been given in a unique and special way for the sake of his kingdom. I mean, for Paul, it, it, it was language acquisition earlier in life, and it was public speaking training, and he gained these skills over a long period of time so that they all coalesce in the one moment to save his life. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, as some of you know, and uh, I'm amazed by one of my favorite players is Juan Soto. He is a, a Dominican, he's from the Dominican Republic. He's probably the, the most talented hitter in Major League Baseball. He had an uncanny eye. He's able to tell if a fastball is you know, right on the black on the edge of the plate or one inch outside of it. How did he gain that kind of skill? Well, it just so happens that if you're a poor kid growing up in the Dominican, in the streets of the Dominican, you learn to play Vita. Vita is you basically take um, the, a broom and uh, you, you cut off the, the broom part of it, but the broom stick becomes your handle. And then you pick up the bottle caps that are laying on the street and you pitch each other bottle caps, and you have to hit it with a tiny little broomstick like that. And the, the, the level of, obviously, the hand-eye coordination to hit something so small with something so small, um, it ends up making for an incredible first, or, uh, left fielder for the San Diego Padres. Yeah, God, God doesn't waste anything in our lives. And the challenge is for you to see like, the ways that he... Um, that he takes the unique ingredients of what he's put you through and trained you in to apply it uh, for the sake of, of something bigger and greater. Okay, the second instance, and I'm going to move through these next two instances much more quickly than I did the first. So in chapter 22, he goes on to give a speech to the crowd of how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and how his life was changed when he met the res- risen Christ. And on that road, uh, Jesus told Paul, these words. He said, I want you to go to the non-Jewish people. I want you to go to the ethnos because you will be my ambassador to the ethnos, to the Gentiles. And when he says those words, ethnos, uh, everybody in the crowd, they're irate because, you know, they think um, there's just tremendous tension between Jews under occupation from the Roman Empire and not, you know, those non-Jews and Jews, and, and they can't believe it. And so at that moment, they just start screaming, away with him! You know, rid the face of the earth with this man. He should not be allowed to, to live. Well, the Roman soldiers who are standing there, they don't speak a word of Aramaic. They have no idea what it was that Paul just said to the people. Uh, so they assume it's Paul's fault, and they haul him inside the barracks and they decide, well, uh, we will interrogate him through, you know, whipping him. And so they pull out the leather thongs that they, with, like, usually they would have bone embedded at the end of the, the pieces of leather, and, and, you know, you'd throw it at the back, and it would pull off the, the, the flesh of the back. And they think, scholars think that this is likely the place that Jesus went when he was flogged. And if you remember, they said the same thing about Jesus. Away with him! You know, we want nothing to do with him. So Paul, he's following in the footsteps of Jesus. 
Only then he throws a curveball, and he pipes up in verse 25 of chapter 22, and he says, um, uh, are you going to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? So citizenship was very big in the empire because uh, a, a small percentage of the empire were actually citizens. The majority of the empire were slaves, non-citizens. And um, the commander says, oh, I had to um, buy my citizenship. And Paul says, I've been a citizen since birth. And he sort of puffs out his chest. Uh, now, during Paul's speech to the crowd, notice he made no mention of the fact that he was a Roman citizen because it wouldn't have helped him then. It would actually have harmed him then. <laughs> but, but here he is with the Roman soldiers, and he basically you know, slaps the citizenship trump card right down on the table, and they're like, well, we can't do this because he's a citizen. Again, he's very you know, dodging, cagey. Uh, it's almost like a boxer who you, you throw the punch and he slips it to the left, and then you throw the uppercut and he slips it to the right. He's like Floyd May Mayweather. You can't land a punch on him. The last one, the last act of shrewdness is super quick, but he is then later brought before the Jewish ruling council, which is called the Sanhedrin. And he, he looks up at the faces of these men. He knows them because he himself had previously been a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and he, he recognizes who's in the audience, that there's kind of a, a, an even distribution of two religious factions in the audience. There's Pharisees sitting up there, and there's Sadducees sitting up there. I won't go into the details of, of how those two groups differed. Needless to say, they differed in, in substantial ways. So when he's basically in his second trial here in front of the Sanhedrin, um, Jesus was quiet when they made false accusations against him. Not Paul. Paul says, <clears throat> I am here being tried because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead, which was his, his way of politically saying, um, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Pharisee and I believe in this kind of stuff. And these Sadducees, they, they don't. And so he basically, at that moment, um, he, he plays the religious trump card. And I think what's so, what's so remarkable to me is how in these high-conflict situations where it really is a matter of life and death, this guy has such incredible poise, such presence of mind. I mean, I totally freeze on my feet <laughs> when I'm put on the spot, and yet Paul, he, like, he comes through in, in flying colors. How does he do it? Well, he does it by the Holy Spirit. Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. Like when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about what you will defend yourselves, how you will defend yourself, or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you um, at that time what it is you should say. So there's the sense that God's Holy Spirit moves through Paul in that moment so that he's you know, empowered to do the thing, to play the card, to shift and to move um, in, in, the perfect, in the perfect way. But at the same time, I think Paul likely, he probably thought through these things ahead of time as well. And that's it. You know, shrewd people, uh, shrewd people tend to first study how things work, and then they leverage that knowledge to tip the balance in a favored direction. Shrewdness is, uh, in the words of w one author, shrewdness is the expert application of the right force at the right time in the right place. 
How would a passage like this uh, apply to us, 21st century South Scottsdale? Obviously, we're not facing high-level persecution, um, situations where we're being tried in courts and jousting with Romans and Pharisees and Sadducees and mobs. Well, Jesus makes it somewhat easy. We read about it already. Shrewdness in the parable of the dishonest manager from Luke 16. It's a strange story. Briefly, we're told a rich man comes to the steward that he had put in charge of his household and said, uh, you're fired. Uh, you're, you're, you're gone. Now, the steward, he has a bad reputation in town. He knows that a lot of people in town don't like him, and so his prospects for finding a new job are, are kind of bleak. But he's a clever kind of guy, and he comes up with this idea that when, when the master's debtors on his last day of work come, come in and they come to, like, make good on their accounts— the steward, he's going to ask them a question. Well, let's look at that bill together. Um, how, how much do you owe? Do you owe $400? Well, today's your lucky day. <laughs> We're going to take that $400. Let's make it 200 And just remember who you have to thank. <laughs> and so what he does is in each one of these bills, he knocks off basically 50% of it, uh, an enormous amount of the debt, which Jesus says creates friendships, which basically ingratiates himself with people who he didn't previously have a good relationship with. Um, And you'd think that when the master finds out about this, uh, when he finds out what happened, he would just be absolutely furious at the guy. But here's the punchline. In Jesus' story, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Why is it? Why is it that the Christians will read their Bibles and and pray and go to church and worship and and then leave and head back into the world and just act in the most obnoxious and and dumbest ways possible? You'd say, well, that's probably partly because of original sin and we have, you know, sin polluting every part of us. But you know, some things drive me crazy, and this is one of them, because this is sort of, in my mind, the, the opposite of shrewdness. Somebody posted this on, um, on my Twitter feed just the other day. Uh, those of you who have worked in the food service industry before, have you ever received one of these before? It's either a $20 bill that's folded in half. You see it under the ketchup there. Or it's a $50 bill, even folded in half, and they give this to the server, only to find, as they open it, that it's a fake 20 it's a gospel tract. It's a, don't be fooled. There's something more valuable that you can have in this life than, than money. And they basically stiff the server with, with, a, with a gospel tract. You know, like what, what a truly disgusting idea. There, there are two types of clever in the world. You can be clever as a devil and clever as an angel. And the devil is really clever because he basically does things that are in the name of Jesus, but are completely, you know, not in the spirit of Jesus, that are completely anti-Jesus. Because what was Jesus' real message about cleverness and money? Verse 9, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when, when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What he's saying is, like, we are to be creatively generous with our money, Like, instead of tipping with a fake 50, we should tip with a real 50. Like, that's what it means to be a shrewd Christian, is is to be truly generous with what we have. Like, a fake 50 is anti-Christian. 
Like the words of Jesus are, use whatever money, resources, times that you have to make friendships that will last forever. You know, most people that we would describe as clever are people who use their cleverness as a way to gain advantage over other people. Um, They use their cleverness as a way to make money for themselves or to amass power or to swindle people out of their fortunes. But, But Christians are the people who use their cleverness for the advantage of other people. Um, And so, kind of in conclusion, have you ever played the carrot cake game? I think I may have mentioned this in some of our formation meetings, but it's named the carrot cake game because, uh, well, how in the world did somebody come up with carrot cake? (laughs) Like, how did it ever get invented? Maybe it was a family that had invited their neighbors over for a meal, and one hour before the meal, they realized that they didn't, you know, have a dessert prepared, so they searched, you know, frantically through their cabinets and pantry to find ingredients, and they stumbled across some flour and water and sugar and baking powder, and well, we got carrots, and so they're just like, let's just throw it all together, and they combine these seemingly unrelated items in such a way that it makes for just delicious goodness. (laughs) That's maybe how carrot cake um, was formed. And so the carrot cake game is sort of in that spirit. It's kind of an activity that I'd love to see our community groups do in the fall. And so here is how it works. You Learning to love our neighbors creatively and shrewdly is a bit like inventing a new recipe. We look into the pantry of our lives— See what we have to work with and imagine a new dessert that will show love to others. It doesn't take a stroke of genius or an eccentric personality. It just takes the ability to see three things. The world's brokenness, i.e. the world's problems. Your resources, your gifts, and some way to use your resources to address the brokenness of our world or aka creative love because creative love Creative love is an act of shrewdness. You know, if we just slow down enough to reflect on the brokenness around us and the potential blessing embedded in something as simple as a bicycle or an iPhone or a degree in accounting, like there, there are more ideas out there than we could ever execute in our lifetime. On the back table there is a distillation of the carrot cake game. You can take it home. You could do, you could do this <clears throat> even as a family with your kids, but... Uh, number one, you make a list of the problems in the world and create a stack of index cards with one problem written on each card. So a stack of index cards, you might have like loneliness, racism, toxic political discourse. So whatever is the, the brokenness that you see around you, you write that down. Number two, you take a second stack of cards and you write out all of the resources that God has blessed you with. It could be a bike. It could be your front yard. It could be your baking skills. What, you know, you just, what do you have? What, what, have he, what uniquely has he given you? You write those resources down. Number three, you shuffle the two decks. <laughs> and then you draw one resource card and one brokenness card. And step four, you spend time brainstorming just the ways that your resource might be able to mesh and to meet that piece of brokenness, that aspect of the world's brokenness. And sometimes, I mean, the combinations will end up being kind of ridiculous, like using a, a pancake recipe to help exhausted teachers. It may not, might, may not strike as you as a, a very likely missional enterprise, but it's, 
It's interesting how, how a creative exercise like that can, can stir up within you and your group um, new ideas that help you see new relationships between your assets and your neighbor's needs. So I, um, I'd highly recommend that you try that. And I'm out of time. Most people use their cleverness to gain an advantage over others. I said that before. Jesus, uh, he used his cleverness to, to tussle with his uh, religious enemies. <laughs> he had a way of, of pushing the Pharisees' buttons. But ultimately, his, religious, or his cleverness he used to cleverly you know, go to a cross. He gave himself up. Um, he gave himself up for the life of the world. Like, we are the only religion in the world that ever claims that we have a God like that, a God who actually came down into our lives and was contaminated with the same things that we are contaminated with, who had the, the same diseases that we, he, we have in order that he might become the medicine. I think the most important mission in the world is, is for as many people as possible to come to know God's saving love and healing in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and that's... That is our mission, isn't it? As, as his disciples, as his followers. Like, it's almost as if we have the cure for cancer. We have the, the greatest cure imaginable. The only problem is that we live in a world where people don't trust other people. And maybe we live in a world where people have been used by others and they're skeptical of medicine. And maybe they've been given a whole lot of fake medicine before. So that, that means that they're going to be resistant to the very thing that would end up healing them which means that you got to be shrewd in the way you apply it. And, you know, I'm totally guilty, but, like, we spend a lot of time, say, in Sunday school or Bible classes, studying the Word of God and and learning the Bible, which is all great. But, like, how how many hours have we ever spent, like, in our Christian upbringing, thinking creatively as a team about how we get to go and be a blessing and, a, and distributor of the medicine to the world. Um, so I just encourage us uh, to maybe take a step in that direction, to let dove-like innocence and serpent-wise innovation um, help us take the goodness of Jesus out to South Scottsdale and beyond. Amen.